Good morning and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Ragini Singh Pawar, along with my co-host, Vicky Lee. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. The semiconductor industry has become a lightning rod for geopolitical tensions between the US and China. Competition in the technological frontier has become an arena where both the US and China are competing for dominance. In 2022, the Biden administration signed the Chips and Science Act into law to bolster semiconductor manufacturing in the US and enacted sweeping export controls against China. This week's episode takes a deep dive into how geopolitical tensions between the US and China are impacting the semiconductor industry and their broader ramifications for the global economy. Through a conversation with Antonio Hamedi of the Mercator Institute for China Studies, the first segment of the episode breaks down the impacts of the chip war on the economies of the US and China and takes a look at how the US is changing the way export controls are being used. In the second segment, we have a conversation with Benjamin Bergen from the Council of Canadian Innovators. This segment provides a Canadian perspective on the chip war and whether Canada should pursue its own long-term goal of domestic semiconductor production. Our first guest on the show today is Antonia Hamedi. Antonia is an analyst at the Mercator Institute for China Studies located in Germany. She works in China's pursuit of tech self-reliance, especially in areas like semiconductors and operating systems, its internet infrastructure, and disinformation and hacking campaigns. She has worked at the German Corporation for International Cooperation as a journalist in Asia and at the German Institute for International and Security Affairs. Antonia holds a bachelor's degree in East Asian politics and economics from Zhuo University Bochum and Renmin University of China and has a master's degree in international relations from the Graduate Institutes of International and Development Studies in Geneva and New Delhi. Hello Antonia, thank you so much for joining us on Beyond the Headlines today. Hi Ragini, thank you for having me. So let's start with the basics. Why are chips so critical to technological development and how is the chip war between the US and China relevant for the general population? So I think chips are so critical to tech development mostly because chips are everywhere. We are currently recording this on at least for me on my laptop. My laptop has a number of chips in it. If we're thinking of what is happening in Ukraine and the military, most weapon systems used there have a number of chips in them. If we're thinking of pretty much all technology chips are in there. So yes, we could say, well, it doesn't really affect me. But if you've tried in the last two years to buy a car, for example, and it's been back ordered and you ha- weren't able to get it for a year or m- longer, that's because chips weren't available for your car. And this doesn't have to be a very smart car or a self-driving car. Even just regular cars have probably 200 chips in them. So chips are really, really very important for everyone. And if the chips are down, so if there's any sort of shortage, you really feel it as a consumer and the military also feels it. Now, just to elaborate a bit more on that, especially with regards to the recent export controls, what is the impact that they would have on the general consumer? 
So I think for the general public, there's a number of things that are really important here. One, these are controls. They're probably going to make chips more expensive in the short run, especially high-end chips. So if we're thinking of, well, how do we get a new computer? It might be more expensive. But even more so, what this spells about what the relationship between the US and China more general. And China is critical to so many supply chains in chips, but also beyond chips, that there's a good chance that um, currently China has not retaliated. But if they were to reta retaliate, we would feel that. China has recently um, started to put technology for creating solar panels onto export control lists. So that would mean for me as a general consumer who maybe is concerned with the environment and would like to have more solar energy, more wind energy. For all of these green technology supply chains, China is currently indeed um, central. So looking at not only the chips issue, but what this means for the broader US-China relation, there is a real risk that we see really two separate value chains in the world and that we as Europe, but also as Canada, which obviously is more in the US value chain than in the Chinese value chain, would have to choose and would then also have to burden higher prices, more fluctuations in supply, which would mean maybe it instead of it taking six months to build solar panels on my roof, it might take a year or two. So these things really, they feel a little abstract. But if you break them down to the reality of sort of your life, they can become quite, quite important. We currently are seeing because um, 5G development China is one of the leaders in 5G, and many countries have indeed banned Chinese 5G vendors from building 5G in their countries. And in some of these countries, we now have delays in 5G, also due to the chips shortage, because Nokia and Ericsson, the other big vendors, had trouble actually sourcing their chips for um, 5G base stations, for example. Thank you. That was very interesting. So in light of the new export controls that the Biden administration rolled out in October of 2022, uh, in order to restrict China's access to advanced semiconductors and the equipment used to manufacture them, how has China responded to these restrictions? So far, China hasn't really responded to the U.S. export restrictions. They have, obviously, they have started a suit in front of the WTO, but this will not be successful, mostly because, one, nothing is happening at the WTO since the U.S. is blocking the appointment of appellate of like appeals judges. And two, the US is basically stating that national security is not something that can be de dealt with at the WTO. So there won't be anything happening. They have expanded or like they have started to expand some of their export controls regimes to include possibly um, specific type of semiconductors for solar panels. But so far, there hasn't been a lot of development happening. One of the reasons for that, I'm sure, is that China was just in this very intense situation of um, zero COVID ended right around the time. There was the National Party Congress right around the time. So there is a lot of, a lot of uncertainty anyway. And it's also the case that in the past, it has happened some 
sometimes that China has, instead of sort of responding very swiftly, they have taken some time to mull over how to respond. They have an anti-foreign sanction law, for example, but this has been in place even before these export controls. So until now, there hasn't been a big response. If you're monitoring, which I am, of course, Chinese social media and also maybe um, Chinese sort of intellectual and, and what they're saying, there has been a little bit of a discussion one on why China hasn't responded and they've really said the same as I have said and also of course that China can't really respond in kind in this specific technology because China is so dependent on the US and other countries that there's not really much they could do actually in this specific technology. Of course, they could take it to different technologies, but with China's growth being so problematic recently anyway, it would be very costly for China to respond. We are expecting some sort of response probably, but it might be something that's very sort of covert or that we won't actually even perceive because it might be more domestically. The response could be, for example, and I think Bloomberg actually mentioned this, a big new package to develop domestic semiconductor industry. But even there, there hasn't been a decision made based on what we are told. And there seems to be a lot of disagreement on what the best way is. So I think to some degree, China was also surprised and shocked by how sweeping these controls are. And they're really reorganizing how they think about these kinds of controls. And we are expecting additional controls in the next couple of months and years in different technology. So it will be really interesting to see if China will have set up an internal mechanism to respond to these controls in the future. So analysts have predicted that because of these controls, the Chinese semiconductor industry is going to be set back uh, by almost decades. So do you think that China has the capacity to catch up with the US in terms of any domestic production that they revamp? And is it even feasible for China to become self-reliant in the highly complicated supply chain for semiconductors? I think setting China back decades is a little drastic. The export controls apply only to 14, 16 nanometer chips. These are chips that are maybe five to 10 years old. So we're not talking decades here. For all the other chips, China can still import the technology to produce them. China is able and was able to produce 14 nanometer chips. They also have done some seven nanometer chip production, but probably not at scale. So there is a setback. However, something that is often not really discussed is for which technologies or for which applications do you really need these very, very advanced chips? And this is really a minority of applications. If we're talking about the chip shortage in the last year or two, it wasn't about the most advanced chips. It wasn't about five nanometers, seven nanometers. We were talking about 28, 40, 60 nanometers chips. So um, if we're going by this, then it's more about China maybe rolling back brokers a little bit, but mostly about freezing it in place. And this freezing in place will still be good enough for many, many applications. There is a possibility, and I think it is a strong possibility, that China will continue to produce chips. China will continue to import chips. It just won't be able to compete at the highest level. This will impact AI research, for example. This will impact supercomputers, although in supercomputing, they have stockpiled chips quite extensively. And it might actually help China in building up some of this technology itself. Because we can also see in, in the Chinese case, if there's no competitor, 
then even technology that wouldn't make it on the world market can become the de facto technology because there's no competitor. So let's say a Chinese firm is producing a chip that's 20 cent more expensive than a Western firm, but the Chinese firm can produce this chip in China and the Western firm can't export this chip to China. Then suddenly this not as good chip will become basically commercially viable in China. And this is something that is very possible, especially with chips, because chips are such a strategic technology to the Chinese Communist Party, to the domestic economy, to the way the Chinese Communist Party is seeing the digital economy as its future, that they are willing to basically pay a little bit extra in order to develop it domestically. So I don't think it is realistic for China to become completely self-sufficient in chips, just in terms of numbers. That's not where we're going. It's also not realistic for the West to become completely self-sufficient, even with Japan, the U.S., the EU, Korea, all together, we would still need to produce them somewhere. And producing them in sort of high-income countries is quite difficult, which is why chip production has moved to lower-income countries in many cases. So even there, the West will probably not be completely independent, but also the export controls are sometimes mischaracterized. It's not about cutting off China from all chips. It's only about these most advanced chips. So it also doesn't need to be completely independent in all chip technology across the entire value chain. Thank you so much for that. That really explained these export controls so well, which have kind of been obscured a lot by these uh, eye-catching headlines. So just shifting gears a little bit, what has been the global response and impact of the U.S.'s restrictions? And more specifically, uh, countries like the Netherlands, South Korea and Japan, which play highly critical roles in the supply chain, how have they reacted? So I think the global response has been muted in many ways. South Korea, Japan, Netherlands were all very unhappy with the US doing this on their own and not in cooperation with other countries, not in a usual multilateral fashion, but instead in a unilateral fashion. Some of these companies, especially, especially ASML and also Tokyo Electron, have for a while felt that the US is really systematically helping its own companies while um, restricting international national companies from doing business with China. So there was a lot of controversy, a lot of debate around that. However, in recent days and weeks, both Japan and the Netherlands have stated that they will be enacting similar export controls. Of course, this was a big headline and it is a big development, but we don't know what export controls these will be. They said they will be similar. They said they will go through the legal system in their own countries, through the legislative system in their own countries, which means it will take some time for them to be enacted. And it's unclear how much of the exact details will be made public and at what point. So the US has, I think, scored a major win by getting Japan and the Netherlands on board and basically plucked the gaps that were remaining because without Japan, the Netherlands and the US, especially in semiconductor manufacturing equipment, there's no one else. These three countries have companies in that space and no one else. Um, China has one company in the lithography space, for example. But if we're talking about what the capabilities are, ASML, which is the Dutch company. With ASML machines, you can create five or three nanometer chips. With Chinese machines, you can create 90 nanometer chips. So the difference is really, really huge. And there is a huge tech gap to overcome. 
So responses overall have been quite muted. They have managed to get the Netherlands and Japan on board. We don't know the details there, which makes it quite difficult to talk about them. And I want to be very transparent. We don't know what they will look like. Will they also be 1460 nanometers? Most likely. What kind of end use or end user controls will they have? We don't know. They probably won't have US person controls or like Netherlands person's control. It probably won't be that Dutch citizens can't work in China on semiconductors. That probably won't be part of the controls, for example. But we don't know. And I think what this really shows is how export controls are changing. Before this specific round of export controls, export controls usually were multilateral and they usually were really, really specific. So usually it was specifically about technology that only had military use or that had mainly military use. If we're looking at older um, export controls, a lot of it was, for example, radiation hardened chips, which you mostly need for the military. But these new controls, they're really more broad. They're basically about what the US calls enabling technology. They're about what the technology that is necessary for any sort of development. This is really a different way of thinking about export controls, which a lot of US allies have really struggled with. And I think even though they have now decided to sign a similar law into effect, there will continue to be tensions like this because we're expecting other export controls from the US. And for each of the technologies where we're expecting them, different countries will be sort of also technology leader. So it won't be for every technology, it's Japan and the Netherlands and the US. For some, it might be the US and France. And in theory, the US would need to then convince this other um, country to get on board. And this will, I think, be a an uphill climb. If we're looking at the EU, especially the EU is not or like some in the EU are not happy with the US going to the Netherlands instead of doing this at the EU level. If you're not familiar with the EU, it's a little bit complicated. What is national competency? What is EU competency? The basic gist of it is, in theory, export controls are national competency, but trade is EU competency and the EU has export controls that the EU has basically signed and every country can, every country needs to follow these, these EU level controls, but every country can have additional controls. So it is very difficult and a lot of debate. It doesn't help that the EU, especially in Japan as well, is not very happy with um, the US currently because of the Inflation Reduction Act and a lot of the industrial policy and really subsidies that US firms will be able to claim due to the Inflation Reduction Act and also due to the CHIPS Act, which both will really um, basically benefit US firms or firms that are willing to relocate to the US. So the EU has mentioned or like EU members have mentioned that this is really something that erodes trust of the US. Why wouldn't the EU be seen as a sort of safe market that could also get these subsidies, basically? So there's lots of layers. Lots of it is political. Lots of it is technological. It's very difficult. And it's becoming very difficult, mostly because the US really unilaterally changed the rules of the game, you could say, by changing what export controls really are. That's very interesting, Antonia. Thank you. In recent weeks and months, there has been news of US companies opening up semiconductor plants in Germany. 
So do you think that the situation and the strain between the US and China provides an opportunity for the EU or even other countries to capitalize and start building their own semiconductor manufacturing capacity? Intel is opening a semiconductor plant in Magdeburg. This was really in the plans even before the export controls. I think the EU is to some degree hoping to be able to cash in on some of that. But at the same time, it's also very clear that if a, if a choice had to be made, then the EU would choose the US every time. And this is something that I think everyone is very, very aware of just in terms of security. The US is really the security security stabilizer in our region, in Europe. So um, what we are seeing is that every country is trying to reshore production to its own country. And Intel, for example, has, say, has stated very clearly that the only reason they're going to Magdeburg is because they're getting subsidies. And this will become, I think, increasingly in the name of the game, is that companies, independently of where they're from, if they're from the US or from the Netherlands or from Taiwan, will go where the subsidies will be best. And that the rationale of where to go and where technology, technology and plants will be located will be increasingly determined by a subsidy race, which, of course, you could argue is good in the way of we will have more not necessarily in low income countries and labor standards might be better and of course in terms of economic security it could be a really good help but at the same time it could also make chips more expensive or if it doesn't make chips more expensive then someone and in this case mostly um, nations that are basically spending these subsidies is paying the tab for that so it will overall increase the cost of chips and at the same time it could also lead to less usage of each of these plants part of the reason why we have these mega plants these really really big plants and part of the reason why chips currently are quite inexpensive is that the usage rates of most of these plants is 90% if we suddenly if every country starts building fabs and they're building the same kind of fabs, then each of those might only be used 30% of the time. So that also increases the cost and it also probably increases waste. So there is a risk of a subsidy raise that basically includes very, very uneconomic production. So speaking of Taiwan, which plays such an integral role in the global semiconductor industry, do you see any potential changes between the relationship in China and Taiwan based on these export controls? Personally, I don't really. I think China and Taiwan have been in a problematic relationship forever. It's quite clear that TSMC will need to follow U.S. export controls as far as they have the foreign direct product rule. And TSMC has also followed these in the past with Huawei, for example. I personally also don't think that China would invade Taiwan for chips, mostly because I think they also have strategic thinkers who know that even if they were to invade Taiwan is very dependent on import from outside of Taiwan for a lot of the technology. I mean, Taiwan has a couple of really big fabs, but Taiwan doesn't have any machinery companies. So Taiwan needs these machine machines to come in from Japan and the Netherlands, and then it can export. But if 
China was to take over Taiwan, then of course these machines would not be exported to Taiwan anymore. I think China knows that. At the same time, many of these machines are really so high tech and so um, maintenance intensive that even if China somehow managed a sneak attack and managed to make sure that the fabs wouldn't be closed down or wouldn't be shut down, even then it could pr probably run for two to four weeks and then they would need personnel to basically maintain these machines, which they would struggle getting. So I think it's not like um, China will decide to invade Taiwan because of chips. I also don't think that China will not decide to invade Taiwan because of the chips. I think they would prefer to wait a couple of years to be more self-sufficient, to have the military built up better with invasion. This is my personal view, but I don't think the chips are that sort of crucial in their strategic calculus, because for Xi Jinping and for the Communist Party, having Taiwan is such an integral part of their identity. So overall, do you think that these restrictions and the so-called chip war between the states and China will have a negative impact on the U.S.'s economy? And do you see the war to be more crippling to the Chinese or the U.S. industry in the long run? I think the chip war could have both a negative and a positive impact on the U.S. economy. The U.S. economy for decades has this problem of a trade deficit. So they're importing a lot more than they're exporting. And part of what they could be doing now and what they're doing with more industrial policy is to reshore some of the production that has been basically outsourced in the past. And that could be really helpful for the U.S. economy, especially in creating more jobs. Um, if we're talking in Inflation Reduction Act, if we're talking Chips and Science Act, this could be very helpful. And in chips specifically, I think the impact on China will be a lot more devastating than the impact on the US, just because China is a lot more dependent on the US in chips specifically. And China doesn't have as many friends as and as much power over the entire supply chain as the US does. Now, as you mentioned earlier, there is a possibility of more export controls in the upcoming months or years. Do you perceive this as just a step one in a more intense tech war between the US and China? Or do you see these controls as being more expansive and covering other sectors? And finally, what predictions do you have for the semiconductor industry and the global economy going forward? So I think we will see more export controls. I expect them to come in technology mainly. I expect them in biotech, in quantum, in green tech. Those are the main technology areas I expect. And I expect that they will be mainly in technology because technology has really been identified as the key area in, by the US particularly. There, can, there could be additional restrictions in AI software or in AI in general. Um, this is a little more tricky because much of AI sort of training software, many of the models are actually open source. Restricting open source is very difficult. So um, I would expect that in terms of what I'm expecting for the semiconductor industry. I think we will see a bit of a downturn. We have started to see that. We have seen that we are currently building away from where actual demand is. So 
a lot of countries are starting to build really, really high-tech, five-nanometer cutting-edge plants, but actual demand, actual fabs would have to be built in 28 or 40 nanometers. So there is an inherent issue with countries focusing on the highest technology, but actually what we're needing is more low-tech stuff. But if you're investing in low-tech right now, then you probably won't be able to invest in high-tech if you ever need it for a specific type of technology you need. So it, there is an inherent issue there. I'm expecting a bit of a downturn. I don't expect chips to go away in terms of become less relevant. I am expecting industrial policy to play more of a role, which means that governments will make more decisions and governments aren't necessarily best suited to making these decisions. There is, at least in my view, a chance that innovation will slow down, mostly because um, Moore's law is not really as easy as it used to be. Moore's law basically says that the number of transistors on a specific um, area doubles every five to six years. And it's just becoming more and more difficult because we're getting into the areas where it's really the edges of physics, you could say. It's not about getting manufacturing better. It's about the edges of really physics. So I think that we could see some innovation slowing down, and especially in chips technology. As far as the overall economy, I think it's very, very difficult to see at this point. I think for China, we are expecting some growth to return now that zero COVID is gone. We are expecting them to double down on a lot of their self-sufficiency goals, double down on a lot of their technology goals, and they will probably be successful in some of them. But they won't be successful in all of them. And um, for the EU, of course, inflation has been high for a while. It seems to have slowed down a little bit. But with everyone now doing basically industrial policy, there is a chance that um, some governments will make good decisions. But there's also always a risk that some governments won't make good decisions and that industrial policy will lead to a lot of waste in the system. And that could then, if we had a lot of waste and maybe overcapacity, that will lead to lower prices, which is great for consumers. But for companies, that will mean that they won't be able to invest. So I think we will see a bit of a downturn overall in chips, especially in terms of the economy. I'm expecting the US to really recover a little more still. For the EU, it's very difficult for me to say at this point. Thank you so much, Antonia. This has been such an informative conversation. Uh, we're so glad that you agreed to join us on Beyond the Headlines today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Once again, that was Antonia Hamedi who joined us for a discussion on the chip war between the U.S. and China. Thank you for tuning in to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM, Panda's largest community radio station. You've been listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. That wraps up our show for this week. You're joined today by Antonia Hamedi and Benjamin Bergen. Many thanks to them for coming onto our show to discuss the U.S. and China semiconductor war and its further implication to Canada and the innovation sector. Today's show was produced by myself, Vicky Lee, alongside my co-producer, Ragni Panwar. If you liked our today's episode, please like and review us wherever you're listening. The views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check us out on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net, as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. 
If you're a fan of our show and want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow up on Twitter at Beyond the Headlines. That is at B Y O N D underscore headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airways. Bye bye now.